Hello, and welcome to Raise Your Average. I'm Pierre Daly, Managing Editor at AdvisorAnalyst.com. My co-hosts are Mike Philbrook and Adam Butler, Principals at Resolve Asset Management, SEZC. Our very special guest is none other than David Rosenberg, Chief Economist and Strategist at Rosenberg Research and Associates, an economic and financial markets consulting firm, which he founded in January of 2020. Prior to that, David was the Chief Economist and Strategist at Gluskin Chef in Toronto. He was also Chief North American Strategist at Bank of America Merrill Lynch in New York. And prior to that, he was Senior Economist at BMO Nesbitt Burns and Bank of Nova Scotia. In the Brendan Wood International Survey for Canada, he was ranked first for seven straight years and was on Institutional Investors All-American All-Star Team for four years. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast are those of the individual guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of AdvisorAnalyst.com or of our guests. This broadcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this broadcast is intended to be considered as advice. to the show. It's awesome to have you. It's it's great to be back. It's it's been some time, but uh, it's it's an honor, a privilege. Thanks for thanks for having me. Well, thank you. I think uh, I think we're all excited, very excited to talk to you today. As Michael said, we might not feel the same way at the end of it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's but, like it's like visiting the dentist. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Without the freezing. I was going to say, do I get a prescription at the end or something? I must get something. You'll get uh, a brush, but you won't get a brush off. Yeah, exactly. I love it. You don't get a lollipop anymore. So, <laughs> so I think, I mean, Dave, what do you, we are, or, or Rosie, as most people call you, I guess, what, what do you, what's your current message to uh, your investors, your allocators, um, you know, given you know, it seems like we're at the mindset of peak 60-40 investment and forget it. Uh, you have a very different thesis and, and maybe start at the top and just take us through what your thinking is at the moment. Well, look, we are uh, still in a uh, pandemic uh, and the first global pandemic in over a century. And, and we have to basically face facts that... Um, you know, all the monetary intervention by the central banks has caused the uh, stock market to be inflated by more than 20% from where it would have been, you know, had the health shock never occurred. I mean, wrap that around your heads that the stock market's actually higher than it would have been without the worst uh, uh, health crisis the, the world collectively has ever endured in over a century. And, and the level of GDP is 5% higher than it would have been otherwise because of the good graces of all the rapid fiscal stimulus. So you see, everything uh, that we're seeing in the financial markets is at the behest uh, of what governments and central banks have been doing. Uh, and uh, the one thing we know is that uh, hopefully we're getting towards the tail end of the pandemic, but who knows what other variants there's going to be. Uh, we're still in that bog of uncertainty. Um, but governments around the world... Uh, at least from a central bank standpoint, uh, are pulling back uh, on um, on the monetary stimulus. And you're seeing in the United States right now that, you know, even with the Democrats having uh, majorities in both the House and the Senate, getting through the next big round of stimulus on the fiscal side uh, isn't so easy. So uh, I guess what I would say is that, you know, from an investment standpoint is this, we have to understand that uh, we are still in a bog of uncertainty. We have to understand that because of all the intervention by the governments um, 
and especially in the U.S. and Canada, uh, you know, through wide swaths of Europe on the monetary side mostly, uh, that a lot of this support is now going to be subsiding. Um, do we know what the Fed's taper? And it looks like they are aching to taper. Uh, you know, you can argue that that isn't uh, necessarily tightening, uh, but it is reduced stimulus. And the central banks, the Bank Canada started this months ago. Now we're seeing the Bank of England, uh, the ECB, and the ECB, who's been outside the Bank of Japan, who's been friendlier to the markets than the ECB for years. So at the margin, things are starting to change. Uh, and I'm looking at this situation where, you know, high yield spreads, credit spreads are the tightest pretty well they've ever been. Uh, you've got in the U.S. anyways on the S&P 500, you look at the Cape PE multiple. I mean, it's 38.3. Uh, it's only been this high one other time in the past century, and that was uh, back in the uh, 99, 2000 dot-com bubble. And people say, well, valuations don't matter. Well, they do matter. They're just not a very effective timing device. But the thing about valuations is they tell you whether something's cheap or whether something is dear. Uh, and it's the old mantra about, you know, buying low and selling high. Um, but of course, as you get towards these bubblicious levels, um, you know, the temptation to come into the stock market, um, it's very difficult to resist. Uh, and you start playing momentum uh, and the technicals. Uh, but I would say that the one thing that has me unnerved about the stock market writ large is just that, you know, at a 38 multiple, when you look historically at that level, the starting point, uh, it's a very limited future expected return you're going to get out of the stock market. So that doesn't play very well into those people that are long passive index investing. Um, but if you're an active manager, um, then this, these are going to be good times for you uh, if you get the actual sector and stock rotation right. Um, you know, in terms of, um, uh, you know, what I'm comfortable with is really investing around thematics. I've always done that. I've never told people, you know, you know, buy this index, sell that index. Uh, I'm not an index investor. Uh, I'm an idea generator. And I think right now, look, we are still, you know, in a, uh, I said, a bog of uncertainty. But the one certainty we do have is that we still have supply chain problems, uh, global supply chain problems. And, and it doesn't look like it's going to be resolved anytime soon. Um, so if you're concerned about supply chains, and it's not about is it inflationary, it's really about how you want to be positioned in the stock market. And it tells me that you want to be more local than global. You want to be involved in companies. And this is why recently the small cap stocks have started to outperform the large cap stocks, because really that's what it means, being local and less foreign. The bigger the multinational, the bigger the export orientation, uh, the more problems you're having in terms of these global supply chains that have been stretched to the limit. So you want to be uh, more local. So small cap service oriented companies, um, that's what I would be screening for. Um, there's a shortage of labor, uh, which governments have helped create. We are hit, you know, and it, it's incredible. You see in the United States, even that with a lot of the states that are governed by Republicans that a few months ago already ended these generous extended uh, jobless benefit programs, the reality is that for a host of reasons, people didn't show back into the workforce looking for these record level job openings. And so this isn't about wages per se, it's about people in the pandemic have are choosing different lifestyles. Uh, there's concern at healthcare industries and in uh, 
you know, public interface in general. Uh, a lot of people that have to uh, deal with this in retail or in hotels or restaurants, um, you can see, and this is telling you that those are the areas that are most difficult to find employees. But generally speaking, people, you know, this has been a, you know, it's a one over century event. People have smelt and, you know, have woken up and smelt the coffee. I want to retire early. I want to retool. I want to go to a different industry. I want to go back to school. That's happening. And that's restricting. That's why I'm not a big believer in the wage price spiral. I'm sure we'll get to that. This is not the 1970s. This is a different labor market. And it is very complex, but people are choosing not to go back into the workforce for uh, reasons that are over and beyond just the wage. It really is about lifestyle and also health concerns, particularly, you know, for, for mothers with children at the same time. So what does that mean? It means that you want to get screen. I said before you want to screen local against foreign, small cap versus large cap. You also want to be screening for capital labor ratios. The higher the capital input, the lower the labor input, uh, the, those are the industries or the companies you want to be investing in. And so that's really the broad thematics. Uh, I think valuation matters. Uh, I think everybody should have a global hat on. I mean, if you have to be, I mean, look, I understand that I got this reputation as being this perma bear. Who wants to talk to the perma bear? But I said before, I've always been, the reason why people want to talk to me is not because I have, have some sort of market ideology. Uh, I just am an ideas guy. And I always tell people, because a lot of my clients are long-only investors, they have to be fully invested in the stock market. What do I do? Well, if you're globally exposed, uh, I would say, once again, go to the areas of the market that are inexpensive, okay? Because the expected future return by definition is much higher. And my top idea, I will tell you right now, and of course, there's a we're going to get a, a, a new leader in Japan uh, in the post-Suga environment coming right our way very soon. Uh, and uh, and the answer is going to be that uh, Japan offers compelling value. We wrote a whole report on why this latest foray in the Nikkei and the topics, the levels we had back in the late 80s, uh, why this is not the late 1980s stock market in Japan. Uh, the fundamentals and the valuations uh, are far more compelling today than they were back then. That's my biggest idea globally, by the way. And I'd say then, I know we're talking stocks, but uh, this back up in bond yields, you're now starting to get some yield. Uh, you know, the 10-year note uh, is uh, back to 1.5%, the long bond. The, the U.S. long bond yield, when you look historic, when you look around the world, what you can get uh, in terms of yield, uh, the U.S. long bond trades like a high-yield bond in the context of what you can get globally. Uh, so I, I, so, I so Dave, that in terms of buying the price dips, um, buying the price dips and bonds right now is looking fairly attractive to me. Can you, can you square that a little bit with your sort of uh, deflationary stance and why are we getting this back up in bonds at this moment in time? Well, I didn't say uh, that we had a deflationary stance. Okay, um, fair enough. No, I, <laughs> you know, I, I think, you know, what, what, did I say, did I say that? Well, no, not, not <laughs> you said that. Sorry, sorry, apologies. That inflation, you know, is sort of peaking and rolling over, um, that there are some deflationary um, cool. things at play. But so, so what are your, let me rephrase that and just say, what are your thoughts on the backing up in, in the yield curve at the moment? What's that telling you? Well, about, you about know, it, it just tells me that, that the markets move with an ebb and a flow. Uh, I mean, so we started the year, you know, at 1% of the 10 year, we got to one and three quarters. Everybody's screaming at 2%. We go back down to, you know, 112 uh, at yep. the lows and now we're back to one and a half. 
Well, I, will, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have two eyes. I'm watching my Bloomberg charts too. It's telling me that we're in a range. So, sure. you know, a couple of weeks ago, you'd have me on the call. You'd be saying, why is the tenure going to like 1.2, 1.15%? What's going on here? And so it's a matter of timing. So three weeks later, well, what, what do we do back to one and a half percent? What we're doing back to one and a half percent has nothing to do with inflation. Okay. It has to do with the fact that, um, the, the Fed, the broad expectation at the FOMC meeting last week was that Powell was going to be the dovish Powell that he was a few weeks earlier at Jackson Hole. Yeah. But, you know, it's called the Powell pivot for a reason. He's pivoted before and he pivoted again. There was, I mean, here he had, I mean, everybody was saying, uh, just when was it? At the end of August. It wasn't even a month ago. Uh, he's in front of the cameras at Jackson Hole and, and, he, and he gives this incredible defense of why inflation is transitory and why the secular disinflation fundamentals. And I agree with them. I, I don't believe for a second necessarily that the first global pandemic in over a century managed to subtly, magically create the inflation that everybody has been seeking and all the central banks that it was a pandemic. The first, let's get this straight. The first global pandemic in over a century is going to be the cause of a sustainable inflationary future. Try and wrap that around your heads because I find that to be utterly nonsense. Um, but the reason why bond yields have not enough is because the Fed has said they're going to taper ahead of schedule. And Powell says we're going to wind up the taper early, like by then next year. And then everybody's focused on the dot plots or the Fed's interest rate forecast. And that changed materially at the meeting last week. So the bond market pays attention to the cost to carry. Because ultimately, there's a lot of things that go into the determination of 10-year treasury note yields or long bond yields. There's fiscal, there's inflation, inflation expectations. There's all sorts of things that are taken into account. Well, remember, at, at, at some point, you have to calculate when you're looking at the 10-year note, uh, you know, what is the pricing in for monetary policy? What is because ultimately the 10-year note is some scrolled, compounded, um, slate of, you know, three month bills or one year treasury, one year treasury bills rolling over. It has to all make sense. And there's a term premium. So the market has repriced the Fed and answer your question. There's inflation. Inflation hasn't in the, in a matter of three weeks, inflation hasn't gone to the moon. So that's not what's driven this latest run up in yield. It's really the Fed, the Fed and the Fed has uh, told you basically in their forecast, which is incredible. When you back out the Fed's forecast on GDP for the fourth quarter, they are at 7%. Did you know that we, we have two quarters booked already, and we have 3.7 for the third quarter as per the Atlanta Fed uh, now cast model. So we can take the Fed's 5.9%, uh, which they just downgraded, by the way, but to get 5.9% as per the Fed's forecast <laughs> for this year, their implicit bet is we're going to 7% for the fourth quarter. So I just got to say that if that's your forecast, you'd want to be very bearish on treasuries. You're going to be thinking, why is the Fed raising rates already? 7% growth hasn't happened in 17 years. It's a one in a hundred event. If you remember in the second quarter, the consensus was 10%. So for all the growth bulls out there, they'd have to explain why was it in the second quarter with that massive Biden uh, fiscal package, we got 6.6. Which standalone isn't so bad, but it was supposed to be 10, but it was 6.6. Uh, and the Fed's telling you in the fourth quarter, with no apparent stimulus on the fiscal side, if anything, fiscal withdrawals is coming our way, um, depending on what sort of infrastructure bill we end up getting. 
how do you get the 7% growth in the fourth quarter? And I, I couldn't believe that nobody in the media that were questioning uh, uh, Jay Powell that day after the FOMC meeting last week. How do you get the 7% uh, chairperson Powell? And then for their forecast next year, they have 3.8% real GDP growth. I mean, I, I, I'm laughing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge laugh because potential GDP growth is about 2%. Uh, the average GDP growth rate in the last cycle was 2%. And the Fed's telling you that we're going to have a, another year next year where GDP growth is going to be double potential. Well, look, if that's your view, <laughs> rates are going to go up a lot. But you see, that's not my you, view. Why are you fully discounting the massive stimulus package that the Biden administration has been doing their best to push through the House? Like, is this not something that you feel has a reasonable probability of passing in something approximating its, its current form? Like, it sounds like you're completely discounting the possibility that 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 passes or that something that it's not that because it's not the house. It's the, well, it's not the yeah. house. It's the Senate. Okay. And you have, uh, and you have Joe Manchin uh, and you have Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. I both told, uh, they were called to the White House. They spoke, they told Biden. Manchin told Biden, I, I was saying after the election, the most important person in Washington is not Joe Biden. It's Joe Manchin. They, you, you folks have the wrong Joe. And it's not about the house. It's about the Senate. And Manchin's already said he cannot go to West Virginia. He's responsible for his constituents. He wants to get reelected. He can't go to his constituents with a three and a half trillion dollar uh, fiscal boondoggle. So I give as close look. There's no such thing as the sure thing, but I would say as close as there ever is anything in this business of financial forecasting, we're as close to zero percent. Close to zero percent as possible, on term in terms of getting that the fiscal stimulus through. The Democrats, meanwhile, are shooting themselves in the foot in the House because they're saying we're not even going to pass the uh, plain vanilla, you know, uh, bricks and mortar infrastructure, the say the trillion, unless we get it attached to this three and a half trillion human, human infrastructure bill, which has doesn't have the support in the Senate. So what I'm trying to explain is that there's a greater chance that we actually end up with nothing. There's a greater chance we end up with nothing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm not saying that's a hundred percent chance, but there's a very strong chance that we don't end up with anything on the fiscal side. And, and even if we do look at the, you know, when you consider that Donald Trump signed on, what was it close to $2 trillion, you know, back in, um, you know, back in, uh, at the end of last year that showed up in the first quarter, and then the second quarter, well, you know, we get the Biden, uh, massive fiscal stimulus. What was that worth? Like $4 trillion. I mean, and the vast majority of that went to household savings, right? Because it was impossible for <clears throat> for consumers to for households to consume, right? So why why was that? Why was it difficult to consume? I mean, the, the reopening trade was around most of the year, even with the Delta. I mean, I mean that was true in 2020. Why why would people not be spending? I mean, I mean the the reason you had 6.6 percent growth, it didn't meet expectations. Um, but you did have a couple of quarters, the first quarter and the second quarter by historical standards were very strong rates of growth. They, they weren't quite as high as, um, as, uh, as expectations. We've seen a pretty massive uptick in the savings rate though, right? So, I mean, obviously no, households no, have all this really unleashed their spending power. No, this is not true. Uh, the savings rate peaked at 33%, uh, and it's now down to just over 9%. And before COVID, the savings rate was 7%. So yeah, I think that if you're looking at the rear view mirror, 
and you're looking at the data from a year ago, yeah, you say the savings, the savings rate was 33%. Uh, and now it's nine. And before COVID, it was seven. So I, I think when you do the math on that, you'd say that 90% of the drawdown of the savings rate is already the judgment mirror. What do you do for an encore? And, uh, and what I'm saying is that we're, we're facing fiscal withdrawals next year. That's going to be roughly three percentage points of GDP. People have not, people, I don't think respect or acknowledge the, th that, um, the extent of the fiscal policy stimulus withdrawal, the hangover we're going to see next year. Uh, if we just, you're right. If we don't see the fiscal, if we don't see any fiscal stimulus, the economy is going to roll back over either into an outright recession or growth recession. Uh, because three percentage points of GDP coming out of fiscal withdrawal um, is uh, is a very big hit when you consider where the underlying trend is right now. Uh, might not bring you to negative. Uh, I'm not going to say we're going to have an NBER-defined recession. I know people will just, it's incredulous. How, but everybody's telling me they're <laughs> saying that the economy was just booming. Oh. Oh, the, the, the growth down well, the it's highly dependent on whether we get these infrastructure bills passed, right? This is why the future is so unbelievably oh, passed. Oh, I don't, I don't, again, I don't agree with that. That is, okay, if you've got three and a half trillion, okay, that's a big nut. But it's not happening. It's not happening. It would be reckless uh, to say to your clients, um, you know what, Joe Manchin's a joker and a clown. Don't believe what he says. He's going to pivot. He's not pivoting. He already said, he already, he already got invited to the White House, Okay. And he already said, told Biden, I can't sell three and a half trillion. I can sell a trillion. Now, don't forget these infrastructure packages are capitalized over 10 year periods. So are you really going to tell me that a hundred billion dollars? And then when do they start? Remember Trudeau, Justin Trudeau with his infrastructure package? It took three years for the gestation period. You don't just do infrastructure, snap your finger and the very next month or quarter. No, of course, it's a large time. Obviously well, prices it in advance, right? Pardon me? The market obviously prices it in advance. They're well, going the yeah. well, for... right. the market. Well, that's The market. So what I'm saying is that, well, you know, you could be right on that. It, it, what, what, what I'm saying is that from a macro standpoint, that I, I can't get into it's next to possible to get somebody to say to you, we're 80% priced for infrastructure and capital goods. Um, you know, there's so many other things going on with the economy. There's also the private sector that's doing its own spending. So what I'm saying is that from a GDP standpoint, and this will come down more to a Treasury market standpoint than say what's priced to the S and P or capital goods on infrastructure yep. is that if it, it under status quo, we're going to have a huge withdrawal. Now, even if we get the smaller version of the bill, which I think is more likely, please. I mean, you're talking about a hundred billion dollars per year in a twenty-two trillion dollar economy. Uh, that's basically not even 05 percent of annual GDP growth. At a time when uh, the withdrawal of all the other stimulus, most of it stimulus checks and extended jobless benefits, which just ended. Huge, huge withdrawal of fiscal stimulus. That's about three percentage points of GDP. So you can talk about infrastructure. Sure. Let's add that in. That's a half a point. So you're in the whole two and a half percentage points. So what it would have to register? But the mix matters too, right? Like, yeah, you might, you might have a, a slower growth rate in aggregate GDP, but some sectors of the economy that are going to benefit from a massive inflate, um, infrastructure spending bill may, and, and the commodities, for example, that may feed into that demand may need to be repriced, while in aggregate GDP may not see a material boost. And so you may not see a major 
boost in aggregate demand and a broad rally in, in markets, but you might see some sectors of the market and or the economy be substantially repriced. Look, if you're buying, say, the market or you're buying capital goods stocks, um, um, hard industrials, um, machinery, heavy trucks, if you're doing that based on infrastructure, infrastructure is making a bet on something happening in Washington. Okay. So if you want to, if you're a better, you know, go play GameStop. It, it, you know, the market is not a betting machine. It really shouldn't be. I don't think Graham and Dodd, when they wrote the classic uh, on value investing, that they ever thought it'd be a casino. Okay. So that's not what I'm saying. I've got other better reasons, actually, um, economic reasons, not betting on Washington, why you'd want to be in these capital goods and machinery stocks and the industrials. That's what I said before. Uh, you want to be invested in, in, in areas of the economy that have high capital labor ratios. So I, I actually could actually come up with a much more elegant and, um, and alluring argument for why you want to be in that part of the market than what, what's, what's going to, well, what are they going to do with the House or the Senate? I mean, it's a bit of a joke. Why would you, why would you put people's money at risk based on politics? Uh, I'm saying that basically, uh, there's a couple of things we have, we have supply, we have facts, which are that we have supply chain, that's just supply chain squeeze that is lasting longer than expected. Uh, we have a labor shortage. You want to be capital over labor. Well, capital feeds into industrials. Uh, what are companies going to have to do? Like I said before, people are not going back to work. Um, and, and, and that's just yeah. a, a fact. And they've had lots of opportunity to go back to work. Okay. Look, look at the football stadiums on Sunday and you'll see that the reopening trade didn't go away, uh, cause of the Delta. Okay. People kept on spending and that's exactly what happened. There might've been, you call it a bit of a soft patch, but the big reopening trade, trade is well in the rearview mirror, but companies are going to either have to automate, improve productivity. Uh, or cut costs somewhere else because you can raise wages as much as you want. Raise wages till you're out of business. Who would want to do that? This is not the 1970s when there was wildcat strikes and major labor stoppages and union leaders bargaining for higher wages. Um, this is not that situation. Uh, this is a situation that is related to the pandemic and really at people who are opting to change their lifestyles. This is a different labor market than anything we've ever seen before, but Really, it's it, it, you have to understand what's happening here. And so what that means is that companies are going to have to automate. And that might mean that the whole robotic technology revolution uh, is going to accelerate because of this. Uh, so that tells me that, yes, and there's going to be parts of technology, obviously, uh, not just industrials, um, that will play a role in that. So we're in agreement on that part. I'm just saying I wouldn't be making bets on infrastructure and the political atmosphere in the U.S. is arguably more poisonous now than it was when Trump was in power. So I wouldn't be making big bets on Washington, but there's other reasons why you might want to buy the industrials. But the overriding point I'm making here is that we're going to have massive fiscal withdrawal. The people say to me all the time, it's funny, nobody's talking about it, Dave. I yep. say, well, I made a career <clears throat> out of talking about things that other people aren't talking about as they're looking the other way. Okay. Uh, and so I have a, I have a very strong sense that we're going to have a growth recession next year. What is a growth recession? A growth recession is when the growth in aggregate demand slows below the growth in aggregate supply. 
And that is going to generate the conditions for the end to this current round of inflation. This current round of inflation is very easily explainable. I know it's come as a big surprise. Uh, the length of time and certainly the magnitude has come as a surprise to me, but I can explain it in the context of the fact that we had gargantuan fiscal stimulus boosting demand. That's over. <laughs> that's over. Uh, the supply curve has become more sclerotic and that's ongoing. Who, who doesn't know that? You can read up, a, get to a paper and not read about material shortage or read about uh, supply constraints globally. I mean, teenage kids know that. But you see, what people don't know is the extent to which demand's going to slow next year. And based on my analysis, what's happened recently is that the uh, demand curve had gone way above the supply curve. And that exacerbated the inflation, exaggerated the inflation. That is over. And I just find so many people in my business, what they, what, I don't know why they, they can't get out of their own shadow. They, they extrapolate the most recent trend into the future, but nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent. I can't tell you how many debates I had at Merrill Lynch in the summer of 2008 when oil was $150 a barrel and the mantra the mantra, even as the U.S. housing market was imploding, of course, everybody thought that it all ended with Bear Stearns and that we're off to the races again. The China commodity super cycle. Tell me you did not read report after report after report after report in the 2000s on the China commodity super cycle. And tell yep. me when inflation got to five and a half percent in the summer of 08, basically where it is today. Did anybody know at the time that inflation was going to be negative 12 months down the road? You don't want to extrapolate this situation. Okay. Everything that's happening, the volatility, <laughs> the strength in the markets, everything is related back to the pandemic and the supply and the, and the uh, response from the governments to the pandemic. So um, I'm not going to try and pick the month for you. I will just say it's out there that the big story in 2022 will not be inflation. It will not be inflation. And I'm not going to say it's going to be deflation, but I do tell you it will be disinflation and the inflation rates will come down because I believe in two, I believe in the laws of supply and demand. That's what I believe in. And I can show supply and demand curves. If I was in an economics 101 class, I'd be up there as Professor Rosenberg showing what's happened. What has happened this year? Why did inflation go up this year? Why could it still stay elevated for the next several months? But why the big story in 2022 is why it's going to come down. It's because economic students do learn about two curves in their first year of school, which is aggregate demand and aggregate supply. And I don't know if you saw my webcast last week with Fred Hickey, who's a massive inflationist. Uh, I mean, you guys should interview him. He's, he's big. He's big on inflation. And I, I, I was going through all these basic economic uh, premises and concepts. You know what he said to me? He says, I got a big inflation forecast, but tell you the truth, I don't have a model. Oh, you don't have a model. I guess so. Basically, everybody isn't, everybody is allowed to have an opinion. I firmly agree you can have your opinion. Just that some opinions are more educated than others. But everybody around seems to think that they're an economist, that they know they got it all figured out. I've got inflation all figured out. It's here to stay. The only people I see, and I should actually, you know, act. Larry Summers, who's a classic economist, to be comparing this to the 1970s, I, I can't believe some of the stuff that I'm seeing. The global pandemic and the government response created all these conditions for future inflation. Now, the comment before was about deflation. And yes, 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 indeed, there are secular deflationary forces still at play. 
and I call it the economy in 3D, disruptive technology, that is inherently disinflationary. Okay, and that's ongoing. Uh, demographics, demographics. Okay, and we just wrote a report on this because there's an industry now saying aging demographics is inflationary because, of course, it means you're not going back to the labor market. There's far restricted labor supply. And once again, from economists, shame on them that forecast inflation with one curve, a supply curve, not a demand curve. Because nobody talks about the fact that once you reach 65, um, your spending goes down on average 30% per year. That's right out of the Fed's uh, consumer um, uh, consumer uh, uh, finance survey. So David, with 65, your spending goes down yeah. 30%. And people, and so the demand impact, we just report on it because there are inflationary supply side effects of aging populations. So just that the demand, the, the demand contraction is so much more overwhelming. So people say demographics, well, the aging, the, the most aged demographics aging the most is Japan, their inflation zero. Why is there, why is there, uh, China has got the second most aging population. Where is, where's their inflation? It's, it's 1%. Um, so we have demographics, we have disruptive technology, and the third D is debt. The third D is debt. And that's the one thing nobody ever talks about, you know, the elephant in the room, uh, which is the fact that globally, globally, and we're all in this together. It's not just Canada. It's not just the U.S. It's China. It's emerging markets in general. It's Europe. Um, you know, some scanty countries are better than others. Um, but we have a situation where the level of global debt has now reached $300 trillion. Uh, it's... Uh, well over 300% of GDP. During this pandemic, the world added to fight, to fight the pandemic, to keep people whole, to get them excited about the stock market, to get them to invest, to add their savings. You know, people, somebody talked about the savings. Where did that savings come from? The level of debt, and we all own this debt. This is even corporate debt. I mean, certainly we found out in the great financial crisis, we all own this debt. We all own this debt. We found out the savings and loan crisis in the late 1980s. We all own this debt. Just different entities. Corporations are part of society. Governments are part of society. Households are part of society. It's all one debt, and we are one global economy. And I think you probably have to go back to the Roman era to find the last time that global debt was this egregious. And so so, come down um, yes, we added $40 trillion. We added $40 trillion since the pandemic. We added the size of two U.S. economies to global debt. And that's not a concern to anybody. We'll just kick that can down the road. BC. this is why I say buy the dips, the price dips on bonds, because yields will go up. Yields can't go up that much. We can't service that. That's, we found this out in the last cycle. The, you know, Jay Powell, Mr. Pivot, comes in in early 2018 and tells the Senate during this confirmation hearing that we're going not just to neutral on the Fed funds rate, we're going above neutral. Back then, they defined neutral as 3%, the natural rate of interest. They didn't even get to 2.5%. They got to 2.5% the fourth quarter of 2018. The credit markets froze. The stock market went down 20%, and people thought we might have a recession. And then the next thing you know, this is where the pelt. If it came, they start cutting rates in 2019 and start re-expanding the balance sheet. Just how This is all before COVID. Just how stable is that? So we're going to get a great bond opportunity uh, in, the, in the bond market right now. Uh, and it might well overshoot. But if you were to wear you, I would say that treasuries will give you a better return than, than the stock market will in a 12-month basis. 
when you look at the David, no, you're your, David, your outlook for the bond market uh, for the ten year, let's say, is that it will it will fluctuate, it will sort of vacillate between these uh, low and high range for some time down the road. Where we're right now at one point five ten year, we're you know we're actually we actually have an opportunity because it's likely that it'll fluctuate back down to. 1.2 or 1.3. It might go, it might even go yeah. lower, lower. Might, yeah. might even go lower. Look, th what I'm trying to say here is that let's not assume we are in some sort of stable equilibrium here. Uh, this, this massive debt burden is hugely deflationary for the global economy. Now, it doesn't mean that deflation comes next year. It is a massive constraint on aggregate demand. The debt, when people say, why, how, how could it be? How could it be from 2009, 2019, Obamacare, Obama infrastructure, relentless. Then Trump comes in with, with massive tax cuts and tremendous repeated QE under Bernanke. And for the most part, through that cycle, interest rates are zero. And what? We average 2% real growth. Weakest growth. Weakest growth. Now, I know you'll say, but look what the stock market did. Well, we all know the stock market's not the economy. Uh, but the economy is what puts food on your table. And it was the worst performing growth cycle, by the way, even worse than the rebound we had in the 1930s from 33 to 37. What we had from 09 to 2019 was completely pathetic. And you know why? Because FDR never ran a deficit above 7% of GDP. If you're running a deficit 7% of GDP these days, you're viewed as a fiscal conservative. And then by 1938, uh, FDR was actually back running balanced budgets until World War II took over. Balanced budget, who would ever, I mean, you couldn't even get the, there are no tools to run on. Well, let, well let, let's just say that, let's just say that, that this is very destabilizing. Nobody talks about the debt and now bond yields are going up. And let's see where this plays out because we can't service this debt with higher rates. We can't, it drains too much out of economic activity. So rates are backing up. The Fed should have, the Fed regrets, obviously, they should have probably been doing this tapering and talking to market about higher rates back when the economy was on the upswing. And that was earlier this year. And now we're, now we're on the downswing and it has nothing to do with the Delta. Partially, very partially. You can't see this. You can't, you can't look at a, at a packed stadium in, in Kansas City watching the Rams game and come to the conclusion, oh, the Delta has really influenced spending here. No, we have tremendous fiscal withdrawal. And this is what I'm saying, fiscal withdrawal uh, and, 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 uh, and then monetary stimulus is changing. It's going to make for more of a risk, uh, a risk off, risk off. Now, I know what's very interesting right now is that because yields have backed up, uh, investors are going into the financials uh, and they're going into the commodities and the pro-cyclical trade because people have seen, they've seen the light. What's the light? The light is Jay Powell's forecast. This is the Fed's forecast. I'm trying to tell people, do you understand how unrealistic it is? Unless you believe the three and a half trillion is going to get passed. Maybe the Fed's got that in their forecast. That 7% fourth quarter assumption for GDP and then 3.8, not 2.8, 3.8 for next year on top of that is, is, is beyond egregious. I would love to know what their assumptions are. But this is why bond yields have backed up. And bond yields are going to back up. And because we are so acutely debt sensitive today, they're going to come right back down again. Uh, so um, I think that uh, under you can build you can build a scenario 
uh, where next year we have a growth recession, not a recession, uh, and inflation expectations are going to come way down. Uh, and so you don't even need to have an outright recession to be bullish on treasuries. And they are the most detested asset class. Government bonds, who wants to own government bonds? But you see, the thing is in your portfolio about uh, long treasuries is um, the stability factor. People say, and people were saying this, oh, 60-40, who, who needs bonds? 60-40, 60-40. Well, look, when you do a 38 multiple uh, on the uh, CAPE for the S&P, 2.5% expected return for the stock market. Do you know that? You know that for the next 10 years, to expect a return. Now, maybe we'll have a nice correction, a meaningful one, hopefully a healthy one, where the expected returns uh, will be better at point X. Right now, you know, we're at point T, let's call it. The expected return on equities, people talk about T now. There's no alternative. Well, why, why do you say that? The expected yields in the stock market's 2.5%. Actually, I would, I would say that you're better off buying a high-yield bond, okay? Uh, you're getting paid more at a high-yield bond than you are in the stock market right now. Uh, now, I think both are egregiously priced. Um, but the point about the long bond is the fact that it's the only security in the world where you know for a fact what you will be getting paid 10 years from now. Uh, so you could argue there's duration risk. There is inflation risk. Um, but it is the only security where there is certainty of payment at 10 years. And nothing else gives you that. Um, so I think in an uncertain world, and it's definitely post-pandemic, if we get to post-pandemic, uh, and I think at some point we'll just have to learn to live with uh, with this uh, situation, it'll become a, a endemic, and we'll learn to live with it. I firmly believe that. Um, but I think so that you want to have uh, something in the portfolio that is also stable. At the same time, I think people tend to forget that the total return in the long bond is not just the yield, but also the price. Uh, and I think if inflation expectations come down and, and nobody else has this forecast, which actually makes me quite happy. When everybody has my view, I'll probably get out of the trade. Um, but I think there's going to be room for uh, inflation expectations that are embedded uh, in the treasury market to come down between uh, 50 and uh, 75 basis points in the next year. Uh, and so that is going to be a significant move. And that's going to give you a very nice total return because not only, you know, insurance companies might buy or pension funds might buy long bonds or 10-year notes for, to hold to maturity for matching purposes. Um, but, you know, look at the stock market's got an effective duration of 50 years. Uh, I don't see people hunting, hanging on to their stocks, maybe outside of Jeremy Siegel, uh, for 50 years. You know, people will shift in and out. There's going to be, I think, a very nice trading opportunity in the next 12 months, um, on the other treasury market and outside of Japan, that's actually my next biggest call. Yeah. So David, is it, is it safe to say that, that you're citing the fact that labor isn't returning back to work? There's, there's this huge number of jobs, 10 million jobs in America and, 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 uh, something proportionate happening in Canada where people have been away from work, uh, for the last 18 months receiving benefits. Now the benefits are being cut off. And and maybe that's the only way to get them back to work is by is by by cutting off the uh, the gravy train. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. That's one aspect is is how do you get labor back to work? And if that labor doesn't get back to work, where does their consumption come from? Uh, is 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 that's one one aspect. Yeah. And the other aspect is that 
we have a supply chain short, a supply chain uh, bottleneck uh, disruption that's happening as well. That's also causing rising prices, uh, not necessarily, but you're, you're saying it's not necessarily inflationary. It's just something that's happening in those quarters uh, of the, of the economy where, where you have um, these bottlenecks happening. And then uh, the last thing is that is is the assumption your your uh, big assertion here and what we've been talking about is that it's not likely that we'll see the kind of fiscal stimulus the market is discounting, right? You're you're actually looking you're at, you're you think it's more realistic. You believe that what's more realistic is that we actually end up with a much smaller fiscal package in the U.S. Uh, and then when you when you take, a, let's say a one point two billion dollar package, that's a hundred billion a month, sorry, a hundred billion dollars a year, which is inconsequential in the grand scheme of the economy. Yeah. So so all these expectations that the market has discounted the last six, twelve, eighteen months based on 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 you know the optimism of of fiscal stimulus and the optimism of quantitative easing. Um, now we're sort of facing the opposite where we, there's a lot of opposition politically and then there's also taper talk happening as well where where that support of the bond market uh, starts to come off and and those are the aspects that 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 really aren't getting a lot of uh, a lot of attention economy right now right there's there's we're, we're you know most economists i think what you pointed out was that most economists are actually extrapolating based on what they've seen in the recent past. So there's maybe there's a recency bias in a lot of economic forecasting. And then uh, they're not taking into account these variables such as fiscal uh, fiscal stimulus. They're not taking into account the variable of, of uh, re-employment, people returning back to work. Uh, the return to office situation is also uncertain. Um, there's all the bad news. There's all these things that have been sort of brushed aside because of the, you know, the lucre of 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 uh, fiscal and 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 Fed stimulus, um, that that seems to be getting a lot more headline than than the bad, than sort of the uncertainty of what you're talking about. Well, uh, I think that uh, is that correct or there's a lot. Yeah. Look, there's a lot. I mean, we we don't. Look, there's no doubt that um, the participation rate in the labor market has, has not come back to where people would have thought um, during this reopening phase, you know, with or without uh, the Delta variant getting in the way. It's been very so, disappointing in that respect. So, but we don't know. So, what are the problems that you see associated with that, with that, the failure of, of uh, you know, people to return to work? Like, you see companies like Amazon, for example, most recently making the announcement that they would fund their employees' college education if they wanted to go and, and get a, a bachelor's degree, right? And, and, you know, that's a huge economic incentive for an employee, a huge benefit. Um, and that, that's because they're trying to expand their workforce and, and they're trying to retain their existing employees. Um, that's, that's a very large spending package at the private sector level for a company to undertake. And maybe it puts a lot of pressure on other large companies uh, like Amazon to to sort of follow suit or follow in their footsteps to raise their existing wages and and then also offer these these benefits to their employees that they can get educated 
Um, is that, is that, I mean, that's, is that, is that what it's going to take to get people back to work? Or is that an attempt at what it's going to take to get people back to work? And then, and then of course, if you withdraw at the, at the sort of, at the sort of lower end of the skills, uh, you know, lower skilled jobs, if you withdraw the, uh, you know, the stay at home paychecks, um, then, you know, what choice do those what choice do those folks have to, to, you know, what, sorry, what choice have they got, but to go back to work. And even with, you know, companies offering $500 incentives or, or, you know, huge raises in, in, in regular hourly wages to get people to come back. I mean, at, at the fast food level, for example, the fast food chains, they're having, you know, that's been sort of, well, that's gotten a lot of attention in the last number of months that companies are having a really hard time either hiring or retaining their existing, you know, retaining staff. That's, that seems to be a larger problem than it's being made out to be. Is that correct? Uh, well, look, it's, there's two, there's two factors of production. Well, there's really three, there's land, but that's fixed, but there's labor and there's capital. And so what I was saying before on the supply side that, um, uh, that, uh, that, that labor is, uh, very constricted. We don't know for how long. Um, and that's why companies are going to have to automate. Look, it's not nice that you brought up the Amazon example. Not everybody's got that balance sheet. So no, okay. That's nice. Good for them. You know, that's not the, you know, it's, it's not the entire economy. Uh, you know, most companies couldn't afford to do that. And, um, right. I don't even know what the, you know. I mean, you can understand paying your employees part-time, but you're, you're actually going to say to somebody, I'm going to hire you, pay you, and for the next four years, you're not going to work, and then I'm going to pay for your school. So, you know, maybe they're going to pay for people to go back part-time. Okay, so yeah. that's, an, that's a nice perk. You know, companies, you know, companies have, I, I work for companies too that have nice perks. So, hey, uh, my, yeah. you know, I, my own, I have my own, uh, my, my own parking spot downtown Toronto in my previous life. Okay, gee, that's nice. Um, so... You know, does it, does it represent, does it represent an example of where companies are having even, even the best companies or the companies that are the sort of the most plumb to potentially go and work for, um, are, are, are having even this difficulty in, in hiring people? Well, I'm, I'm going to get to that, but yeah. again, I think it wasn't like Google that, you know, had buses, uh, that took you back and forth from your home to like, you know, California. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. So these flashy tech companies with big balance sheets and immense profitability. So they're doing that. That's okay. That's nice one-off examples. I know it makes the front page of the New York Times. So it must be, uh, it must, it must be ubiquitous throughout the economy, but it's not. Most companies can't afford to do that. Uh, I said, you know, look, we, we don't, who really knows? We're, st we're still like in the context of this pandemic and people think they got the labor market figured out. Who's got the labor market figured out? So you can but, see the but, data that people are saying yeah. the, that they retired. They're saying, I, I'm retiring early. I'm 60 and I'm retiring early. But you might come back. But maybe when you're 62, you come back in the labor force. There's clearly wide swaths of people that are still fearful to come back uh, to the workforce because of the COVID. It seems uh, and, me, uh, so when the COVID yeah. ends, the COVID ends, there'll be a simultaneously improvement in demand because there'll be at the margin people willing to spend more. But there's going to be... Uh, a lot more uh, labor coming back onto the market, competing for these jobs. But don't uh, you think there's a right now upward adjustment in the the labor price? Like the 
they're not coming to the jobs now. It's forcing the labor price higher. We're going to have, uh, by your reasoning, a contraction in, in aggregate demand. At the same time, one of the inputs for production is permanently higher. It, labor prices aren't like lumber where they just collapse cataclysmically back to a normalized price. Once people, they're sticky. And so I'm not sure how that all plays through. To me, that's part of the inflation side of it where it, it becomes a, you know, either a stagflation or disinflationary environment where there's costs coming through the labor market. Are we just going to fire all those people who are working at $20 an hour at Tim Hortons in order to replace them for the minimum wage of 16? Well, we, we're not allowed by law. So to me, there's this, this, this labor factor is a real fly in the ointment of not to mention the cost a huge increase in the cost of living, right? We're, right. We've got, which, yeah, it's not showing yeah. up an owner's equivalent rent, which is a meaningless data point, but you got a hundred million households tracked by Zillow that are showing an 18 to 20% year over year rise in rents. So where are people living when the cost of, you know, basic inputs like food, gas, and rent are rising at 10 to 20% a year? Um, and you're expecting people to be living downtown in cities and working in service sector jobs at the same incomes that they were working in pre-recession? I don't know how that works. Look, what, what question do you want me to answer first? I got one question on labor, the next question on rent. I don't know where the next one is. I think yeah. I, I, I think later first, and we're in a quoting granted labor yeah. inputs to the inflation. Wait, 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 wait. let's keep it orderly. What do you want to ask first? I want to make a point before we get to the labor question first. <laughs> Which was that I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, I actually wasn't being argumentative about, you know, how this Amazon, incredible Amazon incentive was, was going to transform the economy. What I, I think what I was more actually getting at was that it's, it kind of supports your thesis, David, which is that it shows that there's real signs of trouble in, in reemploying people. Right. Getting people, getting people to come back to work and therefore that, that labor shortage is going to continue to exist. And, and, and then, so in support of that, what, what, you know, just to, is that, is that argument there to displacement from automation Pierre? I'm not, I'm not sure. No, how. no, 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 no. I'm not, I, 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 I guess what I'm saying is I see what David's argument was that companies trying to solve this problem of not being able to get people to come back to work are going to have to automate. That's what. Look, it's very nice that, uh, look, a lot of people want, want to go back to, look, the data is showing people are going, want to be tool go back to school. They want to change jobs. They don't go back to their old jobs. This was a, you see, th this was a, a shock that, that affected the psyche of an entire global economy. Uh, we have not seen something like this before. That's why we can't assume that we know everything. We don't have all the answers to everything. Uh, we can build models. We can build assumptions. The assumptions will drive our conclusions. Um, so. Uh, we know that there's a lot of people that this whole pandemic was a narcissistic wake up and smell the coffee moment where I want to have better work-life balance. A lot of people are refusing to go back to work because their bosses want them back in the office a certain amount of time. They don't want to do that. This is not about the Teamsters Union bargaining or QP bargaining for higher wages. No matter. Well, does that, does, does the reason yeah, why? Okay, yeah, no, no, it's, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no
these are this is not uh there is still there's still a tremendous idle capacity in the labor market. I mean, the Fed already told you last week that full employment is three and a half percent unemployment. The U3 unemployment rate, the official, is 5.2. They're telling us three and a half. Now, they have, obviously, because they have a very bullish forecast of the economy and they know that their policy actions have an impact with the lag, they're not going to wait for the unemployment rate to get to three and a half percent before they start tightening. But let's just say we have 5.2 unemployment. And full employment, according to the Fed, if you believe their numbers, is still 3.5%. So there's still tremendous idle labor um, that's not coming back into the workforce right now. And it doesn't matter how much you raise your wage. Like, like it, To me, it's just nonsense to say, I'm going to raise my wage. I'm going to qu quintuple my wage rate to bring you back to my firm uh, when your biggest concern is COVID and coming back into a public interface uh, situation. And that, of course, that is huge in, in healthcare. But it's also true in other parts like retail, leisure, hospitality. It's not about wages, okay? It's not about wages. This is not a wage price cycle. Now, companies may have to alter their wages because they want to hang on to their current staff so that they don't leave. But this is all the context of what's happened because of the pandemic. Now, if we I'd have trouble where the pandemic ended against the ball state, we would have a demand. We'd have a demand impact. Of course, we no longer have the fiscal stimulus, uh, but we would have a lot of the competition coming back for these job openings that are out there. Uh, it's going to be a, a dynamic situation if we ever get to that holy grail. Apparently, we're supposed to get there by now. It's going to be a much slower process. But what I'm saying is that, firstly, this is not a normal situation mm -hmm. to go back to previous cycles to say aha look at that the 70s no it's nothing like that whatsoever uh and it's not really inflationary because um there's and somebody had mentioned about the 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 wage adjustment the wage upward adjustment of wages yes we've seen that and it could go on for a little while longer but inflation is a multi-year process if her wages would go up five six seven eight percent per year it's when prices would go up five, six, seven, eight percent per year. Have we have do we have any knowledge, any reason to think that's going to happen over the next five to ten years? We just came off a pandemic. We had a situation where supply chains got blocked and governments gave people money to spend, and we had for a period of six months a gigantic gap built up between these two powerful curves: aggregate supply and aggregate demand. And I would say I would not exactly extrapolate what's happened in the past six months to the next six months or the next six years. It has nothing to do with the fact that prices will go up or wages will go up. The question is at what rate? Okay, Paul Volcker, Paul Volcker, the famous inflation dragon slayer, uh, came in in 1979 and then he left in 1986. And the consumer price index went up 60% went up 60% in his, in his tenure, but the inflation rate went from 10% down to 3%. That's what's disinflation. It's about the momentum. Few people know Paul Volcker presided over a 60% increase in the CPI. Geez, the inflation dragon slayer. No, the CPI actually goes up. Like the GDP goes up and like the stock market goes up. All this stuff goes up over time. Uh, it's about the rate of change is what the inflation rate is. Inflation rate's not a level. So, yes, mm -hmm. 
you can see wages go up. We can see prices go up. The question is, they will not be going up at the rate that they were. And what makes the United States stand out is that no other note, we will talk about imputed rent. Uh, and, and we can have a whole philosophical debate about, about how the, how, how it's measured in the, by the BLS and how it's measured by Zillow or by, you know, any, anything else. It's a different methodology that people will, but then again, I could say, why don't we throw commercial rents in there? Commercial rents are deflating the fastest they ever have. Why don't we throw them in there? Why don't we throw, let's we'll throw the price of gold in there. Everybody, once again, they think they have it all figured out. Uh, but what I'm saying is that. The United States is special in this regard. No other country in the world has such a high automotive content in their consumer price index. And when you think about where the inflation really was concentrated, it was not automotive. I mean, you had, I mean, so, so that's the sector that, of course, is very sensitive to the shortage in semiconductors. But don't you see what happened? Is they all dumped their inventories. The automakers and the car rental agencies dumped their inventory. We thought this was going to be the Black Plague back in the winter of uh, 2020. Next thing you know, we get vaccine Monday, Pfizer Monday, all the reopening, the massive fiscal stimulus, and they're caught without inventory. When you actually look at the core inflation numbers, now I know, oh, the rent this, the rent that, oh, the... the Dave, what is the percent that used cars represent in CPI versus rent? Well, rent is rent is like thirty percent. What's used cars? Oh, you will use well used cars. Well, new cars went up as well, and uh, I know that what, rent what, went what, up. What proportion of CPI is constituted by used cars? It's very small, right? It's thirty percent, three or four, three or four, three percent. So rent is ten times as important as used cars, right? We're not talking about gold. We're not even talking about commercial rents. We're talking about residential rents but the rent the rent at, the rental component i i know that i know i know i know i know the story okay believe me i hear it i i'm well versed in the whole story about the manipulation of the data and the bls don't know what they're doing the, Tell the, the rental the rental can be familiar pardon me please share it though so everyone else can be familiar yeah. with with the story well it's, okay thank you very much for that uh <laughs> It's because it's because only a small fraction of because a lot of people have a one or two or three year lease. They don't all come up at the same time. You can't just say, oh, the rentals for new people have gone up 10%. And oh, therefore, those idiots at the BLS don't calculate it correctly. But they actually calculate it very correctly because not everybody is paying that incremental 10%. Now, maybe at some point, if you're taking a look at the data, you're going to see that multiple unit construction in the United States is starting to boom. So you're going to start to find that the vacancy rate, which is very tight right now, is going to start to go up in the next year. Rental rates are going to start to uh, slow. Uh, over that period, when you average it out, the rental component is going to drift higher. It is going to drift higher. It will. But they don't calculate it the same way because you don't just say, the landlord says, I'm raising my rents 10% on everybody coming into my apartment building when 98% are still stuck in a lease. But Dave, at the moment, you've had a uh, suspension of evictions, right? So now that's running off over the next few months. We're going to see how many um, renters are going to reset their rates and what that's going to do to aggregate inflation in rents, even as calculated by the BLS, right? The other thing, I, the way I understand anyways, and please feel free to correct me because I'm not an expert in imputed rent, but my understanding is that the owner's equivalent rent is computed by surveying households 
and asking them how much they per, they feel that they're they could charge for rent. And this is a very substantial portion of the survey is for households that don't even rent their home and or don't rent any properties and have never rented any properties. Whereas the Zillow numbers are actual, you know, rents charged by a hundred million units across every region of the US. Those are asking rents and those are on new uh, entrance into the rental market. And there's two components of the CPI, the rents. There's the owner's equivalent and, and there's the actual rent component. And, they, and, they, and, they, and they're rising pretty well at, at the same rate. Um, so to go back, and I don't, I don't know what your point is um, or the point you're trying to make. Uh, the point that I'm making is that, uh, and, and by the way, most countries in the world um, do a user cost approach of home ownership uh, in their numbers. It's not, it's not that unusual. The point I was making is that uh, what drove the inflation was uh, automotive, uh, anything that was related to the semiconductor shortage. And the auto industry was the poster child for that. And core inflation in the United States, uh, X automotive is running around 2% year over year. Uh, when you look, take a look at the median, at the median inflation rate in the United States is running close to 2%. Uh, the median rate was not running at 2%, you know, in the 1970s. Uh, in the 1970s, everything was going up at a 10% average annual rate. And there's something else that we have to consider, uh, which is, is wage inflation inflationary if it's rising alongside the same rate of growth as productivity. Because when push comes to shove, the correlation with inflation is not wages, it's productivity adjusted wages, it's unit labor costs. So I hope there's nobody on the panel that would try and convince me that if productivity is 3% and wages are 4%, which means unit labor costs are 1%, that is a real nasty inflationary environment, because it's not. And that's what we have in our hands right now. That actually what's interesting is that the wage gains we're getting is that actually not far off what productivity is doing right now. And that you did not have in the 1970s when productivity growth was close to zero, but wage growth was 10% annually over a decade. So it's, no, it's not stagflation. I mean, we could, everything we could relate to that point, right? Everything here, everything, it's not stagflation. It's, it's a, if you believe it's stagflation, it's a very, I think, temporary bout of stagflation. Yeah, you're not going to look, you're not going to convince me, especially we're talking about the U.S., that the U.S. economy, no, no matter what the Democrats try and do, or what Donald Trump tried to do. Donald Trump, you know, I would be interesting to see if you invited me on, let's say, three years ago, what the conversation would be. Uh, so you wouldn't be talking about wrestle components. You wouldn't be talking about uh, anything else except tariffs. You'd be talking to me about protectionism, populism, isolationism, uh, tariff barriers, uh, and massive cost inflation and uh, tight immigration um, guidelines that uh, would uh, would uh, render uh, accelerating wage inflation. But we never died. We know from Reaganomics that supply side policy doesn't create inflation, right? So what we're seeing now is a completely different type of fiscal well, policy and balance sheet expansion across no, the, the government. The point, the, the, point, the point I'm making is that is that everybody look. The day after, I mean, people can say what they're going to say. Uh, I, I have, my memory's pretty sharp. I remember people talking about inflation 
after Trump got elected. Uh, trillion dollar deficits at a time of full employment, tariff increases that were going to get passed through. Uh, and you're talking about the supply side. Well, you could argue that he was a supply sider when it came to deregulation and especially what he meant to the shale industry, but he was, he constricted the supply of labor because the United States had the most constricted uh, immigration policy uh, in the post-World War II era. Uh, and he constricted the supply of labor uh, through a tight immigration policy. And there's nothing more important to the supply side of the economy than labor. All people talked about was inflation. I remember Larry Lindsay, who used to be in the Fed, uh, the, really the week on CNBC saying that the 10-year note is more than 5 or 6% cuz let's watch the inflation numbers. Everybody desperately wants the inflation to go up. It's like a, there's a whole religion about yeah. inflation. But that never happened. We got our market also got, didn't react, we, right? We got, so you didn't get any market signals that there was inflation coming down the pipe either. Well, you know what's what's your signal today? Like basically what like uh you know 240 and change on the on the 10 year tip break, even like what's your, what's your, this is why it was so, I, I was going to say this at the very beginning. It's a, we needed to set the stage for how we're going to define inflation. Cause if we're going to define inflation by core CPI, we're going to be talking past each other the entire conversation, right? What's so, your, what, what, I mean, what, inf, you know, what, what's your, what, what I'm trying to say is what the narrative was at the time and, and what the proof of the pudding is. The proof of the pudding is this before COVID by January 2020. The unemployment rate was at three and a half percent. The unemployment rate was actually at the Fed's defined level of full employment. We were there in January of 2020. We had uh, record low unemployment for all minority groups, youth, and women. We had the tightest labor market since 1970. Where was inflation with a three and a half percent unemployment rate? Where was inflation? Two. Well, we we didn't reach that. What was wage growth? What was wage growth? Three. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, you're seeing it now. Like I said before, in the summer of 2008, when I was the chief economist at Merrill, we saw inflation up the wazoo and we had the commodity super cycle. And let me ask you the question. Were you, were you, were you basically, did you stick with that forecast in the summer of 08? Did you tell people about the inflation in the next 12 months? Because we didn't Dave, get it. We're going to go back to did you, did you, were you calling <laughs> well, the inflation recycle in 03 and 04 and we didn't see some nine years? You seem to have it all figured out. It's rather, it's rather, it's actually very impressive. What I'm saying is that the footing no. is in the eating. You're talking about market signals. Look, the, the, the economy couldn't even withstand a two and a half percent Fed funds rate. Let's get real. Mm. Uh, we got to three and a half percent unemployment. The last time we had three and a half percent unemployment was in 1970. Okay. And uh, wages were running at 10%, and inflation was running at 8%. Now, uh, we go to pre-COVID, pre-COVID, we're 3.5% unemployment, 2% inflation, 3% wage growth. And everybody thinks, look, I'll be the first to say, like, who knows? This is a, this is a whole new world. There's the, the, it's even more complex uh, than, uh, than it would have been otherwise because of how the COVID-19 uh, has affected people's um, attitudes towards work. But I would also say it's affected their attitudes towards spending. I'm trying to explain that we went through about a two-quarter period here where the combination of the fiscal stimulus and the supply squeeze generated a three- to six-month period of really significant inflation that we haven't seen in, in, in a couple of decades. I've got two eyes. I know what's going on. I see the data. I did. Someone said to me before, oh, the deflation. I never said deflation. Okay. Maybe at one point, many, many, many months and quarters ago, 
I do believe that there are deflationary undertoes, uh, secular undertoes that never went away, that were responsible for why inflation never got out of control in the last cycle, despite Bernanke and despite even Powell and despite Trump and even with Obama, everybody's trying to generate inflation. Uh, and now people are saying, well, the pandemic is going to be the permanent nature of inflation. Um, well, we'll see about that. I'm not necessarily convinced. Uh, I think that uh, I think that it, it, we might even get a situation where if the supply squeeze uh, subsides next year, which is a possibility, um, and we're going to get the uh, demand uh, slowing from the fiscal withdrawal, uh, the case for inflation to peak earlier and come down more quickly than people believe, I think, well, that's <laughs> that's why I'm bullish on treasuries. That's why I think we can go back in a totally different environment because this environment, this is not permanent. Don't forget next year, what are we going to be talking about next year? I, I will guarantee you next year, this is 100% guarantee, we will not be talking about what we're talking about today. But I know that we will be talking about something, which is the midterm elections. And that's why nothing is permanent. Nothing is permanent. Okay. What you can get done in your first term, that can be permanent. Obamacare is permanent. All of a sudden, though, uh, Trump's tax cuts don't look so permanent. Some things more permanent than others, perhaps. But the last president who won a majority in both houses, the Senate and the House of Representatives, uh, that won in the first two years, the next two years of the term, uh, was Calvin Coolidge, okay, 1924. There's not a snowball's chance that I don't think that Biden's going to be able to hold on to the Senate and the House. So there's going to be a whole different, whole different fiscal policy mentality uh, next year. We'll be talking about the midterm elections next year. In a two-year politi political cycle, don't you see nothing is permanent? Nothing is permanent. And, and, and as we're finding out with the Trump tax cuts, a lot of stuff can be undone. So we're going to have a lame duck president, um, you know, ahead of the next uh, presidential election. Uh, and uh, it's not that unusual that a president loses the House and or the Senate after the first two years of having control. It happened to Clinton. It happened to Bush. It happened to Obama. I hope it happened to Trump. Um, and uh, the political atmosphere in the United States is not what it was with Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Um, and even, uh, you know, at some point, the Republicans and and uh, notwithstanding Whitewater and uh, Monica Lewinsky, ultimately, um, uh, Clinton ended up working with the Republicans. Uh, and, and we got the Telecommunications Act of 1996, and he cut capital gains taxes. Who would have thought, you know, three strikes and you're out? I mean, this is what ultimately did in, you know, there's no doubt that, 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 that Clinton moved the, uh, the Democratic Party to the right and now the uh, progressives want to take it back. But the political atmosphere in the United States is more poisonous than anything I've seen in my 35 years, uh, you know, as a uh, political, financial, economic year. And so next year, we're going to be talking about the midterm elections. And then it's basically yeah. game over for fiscal stimulus, which is the training rules, training wheels the economy had all along. It's going to be very interesting to see. You see, I'm, I'm looking at what's going to get priced in next year. Uh, so I refuse to ever drive the bus looking through the rearview mirror. And so people refused to look. They thought we had a commodity super cycle without looking at the housing market. That's what they missed. 
They missed the housing market. I didn't miss the housing market, okay? As everybody's focused on the China super cycle and people are not looking at the fiscal withdrawal next year and the impact that's going to have on aggregate demand. The stock market still may go up. Who knows? The stock market is so divorced from reality, okay? Uh, I, I mean, we already knew that because from 2009, 2019, it was the weakest economic growth cycle of all time and one of the biggest bull markets. Uh, actually, the stock market's correlation with the economy has been going down for a long time period. And it's really all about the Fed has your back. The Fed has your back. That's why you buy equities. I never hear anybody ever say buy the equity market because the economic fundamentals are strong. It's Tina. There is no alternative. Well, it's a pretty poor excuse, but it's uh, it works. Uh, buy the yeah. debts. The Fed has your back, though. The Fed has your back. That's and there's no chapter once again in the in the uh, in the in the Kareem uh, and Dodd books and uh, value investing on the Fed has your back. But that's a long emotional so, logical. What, what Underpinning for the stock market, but let me just say that I'm talking more about interest rates and where treasury yields are going to go, because that's what people are missing and finding people. The reason why the market is so, well, the market's been a bifurcated market. Uh, the growth stocks have gone down the past week. The value stocks have gone up. Treasury yields have uh, gone up. The yield curve is steepened. Why? Why? Because the market believes the Fed's forecast. And my problem, my dilemma is no matter how hard I try, I can't get to the Fed's GDP numbers. So I will I, put my faith in my numbers and I'll say, I don't actually trust the Fed's numbers. And there will be yep. a, uh, a come to something moment at some point in the next year on how economic growth, supply and demand are going to interact with each other. And I think it will interact in a very disinflationary way, irrespective of imputed rent irrespective of, of anything else, just the power of two very important supply curves. And I'll tell you that if the rental component goes up with a lag and, oh, I told you so, look at these rental numbers in the CPI, if the unemployment rate is being back a, a retreat, you know, back up to eight or 9%, nobody's going to give anything about what the rental components do in the CPI if we're going into a growth recession. I have a, I have a thought that I've been entertaining the last couple of weeks while I was sort of thinking about this, what this discussion was going to be like. But, you know, last week when the Fed announced that they were going to start uh, looking at raising rates next year, uh, the market reacted very positively to that news. And, and then, as you said earlier, David, that, that um, you know, at the August 30th, uh, the, 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 Fed, the Fed talk, Fed speak was still on that inflation was transitory. And when so what, I think when you say inflation is transitory, you're sort of implying that things could go either way. Things could continue, you know, prices could continue higher or they could go the other way or the transition back to what the, you know, what the pandemic uh, levels, uh, during the pandemic levels were. And so if you keep on talking that, if you keep on speaking that, that, um, inflation is transitory. You keep on the track that there's uncertainty about what the direction will be or, or whether or not there's anything lasting happening here. And then you come to last week, the announcement that, that inflation, uh, may be more persistent, which I think you said you disagreed with. And, and I, I, my thought is that if the Fed continued to say, uh, to make statements about uncertainty, the market would continue to rest on the uncertainty. 
and continue to behave on that uncertainty. But the moment the Fed established a statement of some certainty, which which it's not really a bold statement of certainty, but it's a statement that that they foresee uh, raising rates next year. Some members of the Fed, as early as this year, um, that was taken very positively as a growth signal from the Fed, or as an, an announcement of a growth signal from the Fed. And if you if you announce a growth signal to the American market, you know, to the American public or to the world, um, then instead of waiting for prices to be better in terms of, you know, a deflationary view on prices, that prices will go down. When you tell people prices are going to go down, they'll, they'll wait indefinitely to see where prices go. But if you signal that prices are going up and that they're going to continue to go up, then what you're doing is you're putting, you're putting really a fire under their asses that, that, you know, maybe if you were thinking of spending, don't wait for prices to go lower. They're not going lower. They're going to go higher. So go out, go out there and spend. Uh, because the things sort of lulled off this summer as well in terms of, of overall spending. Spending sort of declined. And maybe the Fed was watching that, worried, as, as long as people think spending is in decline and they think prices are going to level off or come back down, um, they're going to wait. But if you, if you say the economy is growing and there's inflation, um, you, you're sending the opposite signal, which is that, you know, don't wait for prices to go higher. Go out there and shop now. Don't, don't wait to buy a car, go out, don't, don't wait to, you know, till next year to buy a car, the new model year, go out and buy one now, go out and commit to buying one now. And, and so that was my thought. My thought was that the, the Fed is telegraphing, go out and spend, even if it's not happening. Because between now and the third quarter of next year, the third quarter of uh, 22, so many things, so many variables, other variables could change, but they don't know that either. So maybe, you know, maybe that was, maybe that was, you know, uh, there was a political element to just speaking of growth, speaking of inflation, speaking of a more certain uh, direction or out directional outlook on inflation last week. And, and the market responded very positively as, as, okay, this is this is a signal that things aren't transitory anymore. This is persistent, or it's going to become persistent. I don't, what are your thoughts on that, on that, on that idea or that thought? Well, I mean, we must have been looking at two different meetings because you know the the word transitory was right there in the press statement. So transitory, they didn't change that sentence that they believe yeah. inflation is transitory. They they might have um, less confidence in that view, but that's still their view. Um, you know, Powell gave that sermon to Jackson Hole towards the end of August or in September. What changed? He, he, he gave, he listed five fundamental reasons why inflation is not going to be coming back on a sustained basis. Uh, and uh, I wrote about it in my daily. Uh, and it was one of the best things that he's ever, you know, uh, said. It was a very thorough defense of his position. Uh, I, I don't think it's really about inflation. If you're taking a look at what he said and what other people have said, uh, they believe that they, he always ties it to the labor market. He says that the uh, substantial further progress, in quotes, on the labor market that were practically there. He said, he said, in fact, I feel we're almost there right now. He made it seem like the ball was at the two-yard line. 
Uh, for other people at the Fed, you're at the goal line. Uh, there's some people, even Cash Gary, who's a huge dove, and Williams, uh, maybe they're at the 15-yard line, uh, but nobody's on the other side of the field. But it's all tied to the labor market. They're all, they're all saying, even the Hawks, the Hawks are not talking inflation. They're saying we've already achieved um, our, um, we've already achieved substantial further growth progress on, an, on, a, on, on the labor market. And look, the thing is that the unemployment rate is 5.2. Next week, we'll get a new number uh, for September. Uh, their full employment forecast is three and a half. Uh, they believe that the economy is going to be so strong, we're going to get there in the next year or two, we're going to get back to three and a half percent. So as I said, if I had that in my forecast, I'd be doing the same thing. I might have even moved by now. If I had their forecast on the economy, now remember, they have been wrong on the economy 80% of the time, not just the dot plots, which I think are useless. They're never right. They're wrong on the economy, inflation, GDP, unemployment, about 80% of the time. And they're the central bank. Uh, if you go back to, for example, to uh, June of 2008, Bernanke switched to a tightening bias at the June 2008 meeting. Uh, and good thing he didn't raise rates, right? Trichet did at the ECB. Nice call. Um, so I'm going to say there are times where I will bet with the Fed. And there are times where I will gladly bet against the Fed. And I'm not saying I'm fighting the Fed. I'm not there. Right. The Fed. I'm just saying. I can't get to their forecast. If I can't get to the GDP forecast, I can't get to their unemployment forecast. So um, I think that uh, that that's really what they're tying monetary policy to. Um, and there might be a couple of people that are concerned as, you know, that inflation could run hotter for longer. Uh, I'm not there. Uh, the labor market is, is very complex and uh, they're not going to take any chances. Um, so it seems to me as though unless the payroll report is going to be a complete dud, it seems as though they're committed to the taper. I think what caught the bond market by real surprise was his his uh, clarity over we're going to wind up the QE by the mid part of 2022. That was really an eye opener. Wow. Not only are you starting yeah. earlier, you're going to finish it earlier. And what the bond market starts to see is, uh-huh, well, if they're going to finish, if they're going to unwind QE, then rate hikes can't be far behind. And that's what the bond market started the price in. And that's why these yields have backed up. I'd like to believe the Fed, but I don't have their forecast. So I can't be wed. If I can't be wed to their forecast on GDP, I can't be for wed to their forecast on unemployment. And I think that uh, a lot of the interest rate back up, which has priced a lot of the Fed in the past week, we've priced a lot of Fed yeah. in the past week. A lot of this is going to end up unwinding. I, I can't get to their forecast. And believe me, they're no lack of trying. I've had my whole economics team, team trying to get to the Fed's forecast. We can't do it credibly. Can Can we uh, talk a little bit? Can we get your thoughts on what the implications are for the housing market in that and bring that back uh, into the discussion? Well, the housing market is, um, you know, it's a global bubble. I think that the Evergrande situation in China has exposed. It's not just China. This is a global housing bubble. It's everywhere. Uh, and, um, in the States, it's going to be interesting to see, cause don't forget they're not just pulling back on treasury purchases, but they're also pulling back on mortgage purchases. And now we've got mortgage rates also backing up. So this is going to, at the margin, provide less liquidity for the mortgage market by definition and mortgage rates are not going to back up because of this, uh, bond induced, uh, backup of mortgage rates at a time when you look, you know, it takes more than eight years 
of wages to buy a new home in the United States. It takes more than eight years. We, we've never seen this before. This is a much bigger bubble. Now, it's not as big a financial bubble. It's not another Lehman moment, neither was Evergrande. But in terms of an asset, and considering that housing is the bedrock of the household balance sheet, considering that it is the still one of the largest liabilities in the banking system, uh, you got to be thinking about what happens if home prices mean revert. Like if you draw these charts of, and this is what I did, people said, so how did you get the housing call right in the U.S.? Well, because I looked at charts, I could see whole price to rent, whole price to income, residential real estate to GDP. They were one, two standard deviation events away from what's normal. <laughs> the question is, what was going to be the catalyst? But Bob Farrell's rule number one, uh, that markets tend to re revert to the mean over time. I would say housing is more egregiously overvalued than the stock market is, which is saying a lot. And it's global. It's even crazier in Canada. Yeah. Daisy in the States, um, you got, when you take a look at most of these ratios, the housing market is overvalued between 20 and 30%. And if it mean reverted um, through the numerator, uh, you got some big problems. And then again, nobody is talking about. So, you know, Mr. Fad, Mrs. Fad, you know, bring on your tightening cycle. Let's see where this all lands. Uh, you know that 80% um, of the Fed tightening cycles in the past ultimately led the economy into recession. And then they got a double down. We don't even know. The economy is already slowing heading into COVID. It was already slowing. We don't know. And the yield curve that everybody maligned, oh, forget the yield curve. There's always this reason, that reason. Forget the, the yield curve inverted in late 2018. And then just like, you know, Johnny on the spot, a year later, it's things are starting to sputter. I mean, the Fed started to cut rates three times in 2019 and we expanded its balance sheet because they saw what was coming. That was before COVID. I think that we should be thinking about what will they do? What will they do in the next recession? And do you really think that if the Democrats aren't in control of everything, that the Republicans are going to allow for the Treasury to put money in people's bank accounts? You really think so? It's, gonna, it's not going to happen again. Um, and so we need to see what the what the central banks do because eighty percent of the chance when they start this process, you know, a twenty percent chance of a soft landing, eighty percent chance of a recession. But I'm just wondering, constricting liquidity in the mortgage market when you consider housing is the biggest bubble, and right now we've have wickets backing up. This will be very, very interesting. Well, and, and the potential contraction in aggregate demand, which is going to come. This back is huge. The, it, what, it, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you where we're and look what's mm -hmm. happening in China. What's you know, the stupidest questions? Is it is it a Lehman moment? Is it a Lehman? No, it's not a Lehman moment. This debt is all this debt is not in mezzanine CDOs spread out across the world. It's a domestic problem. We see it's a problem where size matters because China is about twenty percent of global GDP, and their real estate market is about thirty percent of GDP. That's about to go through the ringer. This is not necessarily a financial event directly; it's an economic event, but with huge global economic consequences. And who's talking about it? No, really, you know, people just look at the equity market. Well, things must be great because today we hit a new intraday high, hit a new record high. Things must be great. That's what they were saying back in October 2007, too, if you remember. Yep. Complacency. And on that cheery note. <laughs> and I bond for five bonds on price steps. There you go. Yeah.
the longest duration, the longer, the better. That's, uh, that's what I'm recommending. And it doesn't mean that the next 20 basis points or 25 basis points, we don't go up to me. That's really noise. Um, it, and, and we, we touched on the debt. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so unstable. Pe- people have the wrong idea that the debt situation, what we did to save the day globally by adding $40 trillion of debt to preserve so, stability in this, in society, that is going to come at a price and it's not going to be higher interest rates indefinitely. Quite the opposite. Is, is the play, is the equity play on Japan just sort of the, the best house in the, you know, the, the best tree the forest fire? Yeah. Like that's. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. It's like what I said before, if you're long only equity, there's going to be worse places to be. Uh, and then even in the S&P 500, like I said, uh, you know, I want to be focused. I'd actually want to be focused more on, uh, like I said, screen for uh, capital sensitivity over labor sensitivity. Uh, you know, focus on, uh, you know, I think companies with uh, strong balance sheets with very low price demand elasticities uh, and uh, and uh, uh, companies that are less susceptible to the squeeze on global supply chains. You know, to me, you know, pharma, med tech, to me, it's as much of a no-brainer. There's a no-brainer. Utilities. And there's a whole, I think, secular bull story in water utilities. You can buy these stuff. So you can even buy the ECFs. Uh, there's places to put money to work. Don't invest in passive index ETFs, please. Uh, and if you're buying the market. At, at this stage, and it's not about, oh, we're in the early stages of a bull market. We're only one and a half years into this. No, no, we we, we ended the last cycle with a, with a 30 PE multiple on the Cape or 38.3. The expected returns in the overall market are next to nothing. You could argue zero in real terms. So uh, be thematic and idea driven. Uh, so, uh, I would say that that natural gas, natural gas, I've been bullish on natural gas all year long. I haven't wavered from that. Notwithstanding what I've said overall on equities, there are, uh, items out there, uh, that have uh, secular bull market, uh, thumbprints all over them. Uh, you know, that, that, uh, that would be one of them. What about something uh, like uranium? Is that too small? Yeah. Same. same. I mean, it's, it's, it's gone vertical, uh, but yeah, absolutely. That natural gas has not gone vertical, not yet anyways. Uh, but yeah, I would tend to agree with that as well. And we have, and yes, we, and we've written about that in our special reports very recently. Uh, and so, uh, but I would tend to agree with that. I mean, you could throw, I mean, esoteric stuff like hydrogen and cobalt, you know, um, Maybe not the most liquid investments, uh, right. but there are areas that you can put money to work smartly uh, without even making a bet on the cycle or a bet on the Fed or a bet on politics. And that's really what I've been writing about for the past little while. Fabulous. Amazing. Well, I think, yeah, it's been a great chat for sure. Go ahead, Pierre. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, David, it's been it's been, uh, it's been a real eye-opener, I have to say. You know, there's, there's uh, you're always... You're always, you, you know, in, in the, uh, the camp of, of, you know, a small minority, um, you know, speaking of, of things that, that the market really hasn't been paying close attention to. And, and of course, uh, the, the long bond, uh, the long bond bet, um, is probably the biggest takeaway of all. And it's probably the most contrarian, you know, thing to, to have, uh, sort of gotten out of this conversation. Absolutely. 
Um, so David, how can people find you? What's, what's the, uh, what's the best way for, um, our audience to catch up, uh, on everything that you're working on every, you know, all of your, um, uh, economic views, your, your macroeconomic outlook. Great. Well, thanks for the, uh, for the question. Uh, well, if you just Google Rosenberg research, it'll take you right to the website and you can uh, comb through it. Uh, uh, I urge people to just uh, email me directly, uh, Rosenberg at RosenbergResearch.com. That's uh, D-R-O-S-E-N-D-E-R-G uh, at RosenbergResearch.com. I know that it's long, but it's not complicated. And uh, and uh, and I'd be happy to, uh, you know, to discuss, uh, you know, how uh, you folks on the line uh, would potentially want to subscribe to my research. We do. 10 to 12 different offerings, uh, both verbal and written. Uh, you can buy the premium package uh, at a huge discount, or you can actually create your own Happy Meal and and, and buy my products uh, on a on an ad hoc case-by-case basis. We actually also offer a one-month free trial, uh, which also includes uh, the webcast. It includes our monthly uh, strategizer document, which is for the active investor fixed income, currency, and equity. Um, but really, I'd say go to the website, uh, and you can even log into the free research on there, uh, or contact me directly, uh, either or, and uh, and we'll look after you. Amazing. Um, David, one last question before we let you go. This wouldn't be raise your average without this last question. Um, so would you rather question? Would you rather spend a week in the past or a week in the future? Well, that's a, uh, as long as it's not a trick question, I think I'd rather spend the week at the week in the future. See, if I could spend the week in the future, I, I could see if, for example, uh, you know, the Blue Jays or Yankees will emerge or the Red Sox is the, right. the wild card. And I'd be able to, uh, you know, uh, have a side business of, uh, of betting on sports, but no, in all, in all seriousness, <laughs> in all seriousness, you know, the, uh, there is nothing like the present. That's why they say it's a gift, um, you know, but the past is uh, basically irrelevant unless we can learn from it. Um, but I'd rather have a sneak preview into the future, come back and tell you guys about it so that you'll have me back on your show. Love it. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Very uh, stimulating conversation. Thank Thanks you very much. It's great, it's great being with you. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.